Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It's good. It is good. We're back. Episode uh, 67, and uh, it's, it's, gonna, it's one of those news roundup episodes. We've been busy with NASA social and budgetary stuff, and uh, a bunch of news has happened that we wanted to catch up on. But first, Jason, you went on a little, uh, another, I should say another, field trip. I did. I have a field trip report that is sort of vaguely space-related. So I went to Biosphere 2, which is just north of Tucson, Arizona. I was there last week. They didn't lock me in. Um, For people who don't know what Biosphere 2 is, it's kind of like the high seas mission we've been talking about, where NASA is uh, sort of studying group dynamics um, in a sort of simulated Mars mission that's up on the top of a volcano in Hawaii. Um, In the 90s, I want to say, they locked uh, eight people in the Biosphere 2, which is a large kind of greenhouse kind of structure, for two years. The idea was to make it a fully... um, a fully closed system in terms of biology that they would be making their own food and they had like CO2 scrubbers and, and the plants were scrubbing the CO2. And the, the idea was to make it like a space colony. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that didn't really work. And the, um, the health of the crew was jeopardized to the point where they, uh, I believe had to break, you know, they, they started to have to do some stuff that made it not a closed system, but they did keep the people inside for two years. So um, one of the stories there is that it, they discovered, and this is a, an interesting lesson learned, they also discovered the crew thought they would be, you know, tending to plants and doing scientific research. Mm-hmm. And it turned out they spent 100% of their time um, basically raising their food. And it was apparently kind of brutal. Um, they did come together, the crew of eight, four men and four women, two uh, couples, two men and women um, paired off and got married <laughs> after they left the biosphere. And the other the other four were apparently kind of on the outs with the two couples. They were like kind of, I don't know whether it was jealousy <laughs> or just frustration, but there was some, there was some schisms there. Again, long, long duration, closed space, people together. This is actually important if we're going to send people to Mars at any point. Uh, or or even to a moon base or something like that. And it's what the High Seas mission is all about. Uh, and that's sort of what they were doing at Biosphere 2. Anyway, oh, also, for those who are wondering what Biosphere 1 was, it's the Earth, people. It's the Earth. The Earth is the original Biosphere. Biosphere 2 was like the Earth in a bottle. That was what they were going for. Um, anyway, it's now a University of Arizona um, owned and operated bioresearch lab. And my daughter, Jamie, spent a week there uh, last summer and was basically doing um, uh, uh, assistant, you know, science assistant work, uh, doing measuring, you know, probing temperatures in the rainforest biome. They have multiple biomes. There's a rainforest and a savanna, uh, kind of like a like an Everglades-like place. And there's a desert ecosystem. And there's a, a giant tank that was um, that they're very slowly um, trying to kill all the algae in it, so that they can do different research in there. Um, because it's kind of an ongoing process to get some of this stuff uh, up and running and and useful, but it's a fascinating facility out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, 
in Arizona and uh and and they have these incredible like there's a uh, there's a lung there are actually two of them they call the lungs and the idea there is that in a closed system you need a place when the when the the uh, temperature goes up and down um the pressure the air pressure goes up and down and it would pop like they would they would blow out the greenhouse so they built these buildings that are called the lungs that have just these huge um it's it's literally like a huge metal disc um and it goes it goes up and down with the changing air pressure and that it's pretty amazing and um when you step out there are these two pressure gradients so the first one you step out and the air is blowing you from behind as you go through this kind of airlock from the from the lung interior and then the next one you are getting wind blown right in your face as you step out to the outside world because there's such a giant pressure gradient in both of those places fascinating structure i really recommend if people are in phoenix or tucson um it's worth a tour uh, there, you can walk around parts of it without a tour, but um, we paid for the tour, and it was totally worth it because you get to go into all the different parts. And Jamie saw some people that she knew, which was also awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking through their website. This place looks crazy. <laughs> it's like it's like being on a space colony a yeah. little bit. Like when you get there, it's because it's dropped out in the middle of nowhere. It is what I would imagine a, a colony w- if we landed on some planet around a different star, and it was a, a you know it was a mostly de- deserted and deserty planet, and we constructed constructed a, a a habitat for humans uh it would look like this mm-hmm. it's like it's 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 pretty wild but it is it's really cool a lot of, lot of cool um bio research going on there so the original concept of you know putting having it be a totally closed system and having uh the crew you know locked up is kind of gone by the wayside and instead it's a lot of e- you know environmental science research um, because you end up with these giant closed systems that you can use so they're doing all sorts of stuff they did a um one of the things they talked about was they did a, a co2 test where they wanted to see how a rainforest handles heightened co2 because we may be living on a planet with increasing levels of co2 in the atmosphere and they actually you know as part of that study they they increased the co2 level and found the points at which the uh the the rainforest could no longer absorb co2 and and you know you can draw that as a line and say okay everybody dies if we get to this point uh so lots of yeah yeah it's a very interesting structure so it was it was a fun fun little uh, science field trip uh I, I definitely recommend it for people by the way speaking of high seas which mm-hmm. we, we we do enjoy talking about it. This is, of course, the mission where they go up on the top of, uh, I think, Mauna Loa, and they uh, they get into their lab, and they're allowed to come outside, but only in spacesuits. <laughs> and they have to do, like, sample collections, and it's really trying to make it like they're on Mars, even though they're not. They they delay by eight minutes or whatever the, yeah. the, the delay is. Um, they delay all the messages from outside, right? Because they want you to feel isolated out there on the top of uh of Mauna Loa in the high seas so they've done four of these we talked about when the last one came out they started on the 15th of February they started a new high seas I was really excited I actually looked this up I was like oh this is like that thing that we talked about on liftoff when I was at the biosphere and and it turns out there was a news story that was like they just put a new crew in it was an international crew this time high seas five four people from four different countries Korea Australia Slovakia and Scotland and uh, so that's really exciting um, it took a turn. Ex- except <laughs> then, like a few days later, there was a minor accident, and one crew member needed medical attention. One of the stories that I saw from a local uh, news source said crew member quits, <laughs> but it seems like there was an accident, and they felt like they couldn't, 
they needed medical attention and they they weren't going to be able to support the mission and you can't really run that mission with just three people so um they somebody withdrew from the project they ended the mission they closed it up they didn't swap in a new person um and so the next post on the high seas website is basically so applications are open for high seas six (laughs) so there you go oh well better luck next time high seas but that that is part of the process like you were talking about biosphere two this research exists to to help plan long-term space missions and part of that is what happens if someone gets hurt now obviously if you're on the way to mars you have to deal with that in your environment you can't you can't just go home but uh you know hopefully this is an educational opportunity high seas is going to carry on even though um this mission five was uh was a, a failure of some sort yeah um uh, they're gonna they're gonna keep going because this is you know it, it's sort of it's sort of weird to think about this being research when you compare it to like oh we have to build a rocket we have to build a habitat we have to deal with propulsion and oxygen and food but this part is just as important as all the rest of it because the the human element something we talked about last time at when I was at Marshall they talk a lot about this about what is the human element in space flight and if you don't equip crew members to deal with long-term isolation you're in very close quarters just a few other people then then things you know things can go wrong and that's yeah. that's serious if you're on the way to to the moon or another planet yeah and you, you can't just turn around so um yeah it's super important to do that um hey speaking of the human element you know what an important part of humanity is <laughs> paranoia <laughs> <laughs> this is such a weird story man it's so weird now we heard rumblings about this at the time that yeah. that there was a story after the SpaceX uh, when it was on there was a SpaceX uh, mission that was on the pad, um, and it was f- being fueled. It wasn't even like it wasn't even at the point where it was doing its test yet. It was just being fueled, and it blew up. And there was a story that a few weeks later, somebody from SpaceX showed up at the United Launch Alliance complex at Kennedy Space Center, or or, or at Cape Canaveral anyway, and demanded to go up on the roof because they thought that maybe a sniper had shot at the rocket, and that's what caused it to explode. And it was a wacky story, but there's a new story uh, that just came out in the Washington Post that gives a little more detail where SpaceX and Elon Musk basically admit, yeah, we, we thought somebody shot the rocket. We literally, he said, thought someone had shot the rocket. They were convinced. They did video analysis. They were convinced. They, they actually at one point were like, how do, how do we get, how do we explain what we're seeing here in the wreckage? And at one point they're like, let's just shoot at it and see what that does. And that, that caused something that looked very much like what they, uh, what they were seeing in the wreckage. So they became kind of convinced that, uh, that an enemy <laughs> had blown up their rocket with a, with a sniper rifle. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a fascinating story. And I mean, the, they go through this, like you said, there's like a part of video, like once this idea is in someone's head, like it's really easy just to string it along, right? Like, oh, there's this weird shadow on this video. Oh, we took a helium bottle out into Texas and shot at it and it exploded. Um, I think maybe where it jumped the shark is that they wanted to get on the roof of ULA, like you said. It's yeah. like, I, I don't know. I don't feel like, um, you know, Boeing and Lockheed Martin 
are going to work together to shoot your rocket, SpaceX. Like, I just, you know. It, it, it seems, I mean, you could have, like, a deranged employee or something doing it, but it, it seems weird. And it seems weird that somebody just from SpaceX showed up at their front door and said, I, take me to the roof. I want to check it out. Like, like they're, like columbo or something like i just i just need to see the roof and uh and you know what they what ula did was say tell you what get the navy you know get the naval investigators to come and a neutral party that's sure. not our competitor who's going to be walked through our facility to the roof of our building right. get the navy out here and let them check it out and the navy went out at, or no was it the air force i don't know it was somebody like that it was a military person and they came out uh, and their investigators looked on the roof and they're like there's nothing here <laughs> it's like no mm-mm yeah, I mean that's a pretty that's a completely fair answer. Air, yeah, Air Force investigators. Part. Yeah, come on, it's it's fine. It's it's uh that that is kind of bananas. They did though, and this is another interesting angle. SpaceX apparently did have that moment where I was like, oh, sabotage. All right, we should probably beef up security because that could happen. It's possible, and they did. And there's a little anecdote in this Washington Post story that we'll link to where uh, uh, Stephen Colbert uh, film crew. Uh, which was being ex- escorted by people from Boeing, um, but they were outside uh, Pad 39A, and SpaceX actually called and said, uh, "Security, there's people. We don't know who they are. Can you check it out?" And they checked it out, and they were all good to go. They had their approvals. It was fine. But uh, speaking of paranoia, anyway, a little more, a little more detail there from uh, this seems like it's a little small excerpt from a book by a guy named Christian Davenport called The Space Barons. That's got a little more detail about the paranoia of uh of spacex hey you know it could have been right there could have been some angry deranged ula employee it doesn't necessarily have to be a corporate uh plot against their <laughs> their enemies at a, at a powerpoint somewhere yes like, so mr boeing i believe it is time that they had an accident <laughs> oh my god sure i don't think i don't think that happened hey i don't, I don't uh, think so there was a spacex launch by the way um from Vandenberg yes. in the last couple of weeks. And the a big test on it uh, was they uh, they tried to do a fairing recovery. Mm-hmm. So we've seen them recover the first stage of a lot of their rockets. This was a, a test of a fairing recovery. The fairing is the thing that goes on top of the payload to protect it during uh, during launch when it's in the thick part of the atmosphere. And then they pop it off. And hey, that's another piece. You use every part of the buffalo. Another part of the pe- uh, part of the the spaceship that can be recovered and reused by SpaceX. So they they have it ejects. It's got parachutes. They got a ship that's got like a big net so that they can catch it. If you can imagine a ship with a giant net, it's like uh, and a thing coming down on a parachute. And they're like, I got it. I got it. I got it. And in this case, they didn't got it. They they missed it and it landed in the water, but they still like picked it up and fished it out. And there are some pictures of that ship, um, which is named Mr. Steven. Yeah. Whatever, SpaceX. Uh, you you know, you got to like it. But uh, I don't. And it brought it back. So it, it was it was recovered and in pretty good shape, which is, again, another sign of SpaceX being able to lower the cost because they can reuse those parts. But they did not catch it in mm. the netting this time but they think they could do it next time they think they think they'll make their adjustments and they'll give it another try very spacex this boat looks hilarious to me <laughs> there's a picture of it in the show notes it's exactly what you what you think no, it would be it's a boat it's, with a giant net on it yeah it's got it's got four like uh beams that stick out and at the at the and spread out and at their tips uh, the net is tied to it 
and it is the net like I got it I got it <laughs> catching a fly ball from way up um, maybe next on time. a parachute so it's not going that fast and the idea there is that it's if you can catch it and not get in the water you don't have to worry about corrosion or anything like that it's like extra extra good right because uh, this fairing they missed it but it landed intact in the ocean uh, but because it sat in salt water it's very corrosive so this one won't be able to be reused but uh they they only they didn't miss it by much, and so you know I think it's going to be like those early first stage recoveries where they have a couple of near misses and then something clicks and they they can just do it from here on out. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Anyway, that's my uh, that's my SpaceX news. Oh, we have one. I have one more before we do our sponsor. I have one more to share with you, which is just we got we got some new pictures of Strata Launch. It's the the giant airplane by uh, Paul Allen's company, right? This yeah, thing it's is... t- it's two. 740 imagine two 747s next to each other but they share a wing it is enormous that the the uh, so they they rolled it out to do some taxiing tests this thing is so weird and enormous that they have to use special runways and they have to like do things like test if they can drive it on the taxiway um because it's huge two fuselages giant wing um six engines uh, and so anyway, a couple weeks ago, they were out uh, taxiing, reaching a top taxi speed of 46 miles per hour. That's 40 knots. Woo! Strata launch. It's so strange. But the idea there is that nestled between the two fusel- fuselages, you put a rocket. Yep. And then you fly up high where the air is thin and you don't need nearly as much fuel to get access to space. It's a cool idea. And they're trying it out. But anyway, it hasn't... Uh, it hasn't hasn't flown yet, but they are taxiing now. So, just just wait. And the pictures are something to see, especially when you see the trucks and people that are around it. This thing is enormous. It's mm-hmm. ridiculous. The photo ridiculous. that gets to me is it uh, in its hangar, <laughs> because it's so wide. The hangar just looks bananas. All right. Yeah, it's not like anything we've seen before. Mm-mm. All right, let's uh, let's take a break, and we're going to talk about uh, some commercial space and exoplanets getting blasted from their stars. But first, I want to tell you about Squarespace. Enter offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, complete with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you need to create an online store, or you want to have a portfolio to show off your artwork, or maybe you want to create a blog, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that great stuff. And there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about, no server upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you do need help. Like I said, it lets you easily and quickly grab a unique domain name, and all those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Squarespace has it all in one place. We use Squarespace at FM to power our blog. We had some recent new podcast announcements. I go in there. I can write Markdown right in the Squarespace editor on the web. I can drag photos in. I can change the layout. It's all very easy. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. But you, dear listener, can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. 
So a lot of the conversation after the Stay of NASA event has been around uh, commercial space, especially in low Earth orbit with the proposed plan to phase out uh, federal funding for the International Space Station and having corporate partners come in and take over the running of that. But I think at the same time, in parallel to that conversation, is a lot of talk about going beyond the International Space Station itself. That hardware is aging. It's limited in some ways. And uh, some companies are looking at uh, basically sidestepping it all together and having their own platforms in low Earth orbit and even cislunar space. Uh, And this includes everyone's favorite expandable habitat company, doesn't it? You know, the more expansion of modules like the Bigelow inflatable modules, huh? expansion, the better, I think. I love, you know, I love, you didn't laugh when I made my expansion joke, Stephen, please. Come on, help <laughs> me out here. Oh, boy, now Sorry. it's a courtesy laugh. That's the worst. <laughs> that was almost an evil laugh. No, it's a, it's a cool idea. Um, I, I, I love the idea of the expandable stuff. Beam has sort of shown that it seems to be working. It seems to be okay. And so, you know, I think... Um, I think we're in a weird, weird, interesting place. Bigelow seems to have been like they keep saying they're going to do it, although they have to get people to pay for it. But they also seem to be hedging about like, or they could use it to expand the International Space Station. And what we said at one point, I'm not sure how plausible this is, but at one point there was also some talk that the ISS could be um, disassembled and like modules of it could be removed or moved to a different configuration i that seems impractical to me yeah but after spending so much money assembling that thing and having it there i don't know why you wouldn't want to take advantage of the fact that it's there and continue and maybe that's maybe that is if they do move ahead with this idea of commercializing the iss maybe it's stuff like that where a company like bigelow will build a you know a large module or a series of large modules and attach them to the iss rather than having them kind of like be a separate destination but um it is a cool thing given how much cost to build the ISS and how long it took. The idea that you could, with some of these other habitats, very quickly get up to either, you know, one third of the space of the ISS or in Bigelow's proposal, you know, 2.4 times the pressurized volume of the ISS. That is, uh, that's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty amazing. And that, that shows you that there has been progress in terms of how we think about building things in space since when the uh, the ISS was first formulated in the in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, so they're talking about sort of a two-stage approach. Um, you spoke about the latter stage, a, a single station with 2.4 times the pressurized volume. Um, kind of stage one of that is what they're calling the B330, which is about a third of the space of the International Space Station. They hope to launch a pair of them by 2021. And uh, we spoke about this a long time ago on the show, but they they have sort of a multiple market approach. So you have kind of what you expect, commercial companies looking to do R&D in microgravity, researchers, kind of an education uh, institution angle perhaps, or uh, even government research. Um, I think the latter two are sort of more interesting in a way because uh, they're a little more unusual from what we've seen at the International Space Station at least. But uh, space tourism, right? It's everyone's favorite topic of having a, a bouncy space hotel. Uh, but lastly, to help countries establish human space programs. So if you look at a, uh, countries who are in the beginning stages of their 
programs. Um, you know, we can look at China with their uh, their previous space station attempts, uh, starting out very small, um, sort of very inelegant in a way and very basic in a way. Um, there's conversation now, but they, they, they're going to lack a lot of control over reentry of their current space station, where instead of all of that and all of that expense and risk, a, a country like China or somebody maybe a little further behind them in their evolution of their program. Yeah, India, maybe. or yeah, you know, yeah. Could just go pick one of these things up and you launch it on top of an Atlas V and you have a space habitat, you know, that's pre-built, pre-ready to go, and you can go in and customize what you want, but you can skip over a lot of that expense and time. And that, I think, is, is if that works, that could be a big game changer for a lot of countries. Yeah, I do wonder if the ISS will ultimately be, uh, its demise will ultimately be that it's so expensive to maintain and there are cheaper options, right? Like, Extended duration space flight still interesting in low Earth orbit, but we could, you know, we could set up this this module or, a, you know, fly a couple of these modules and attach them and have a, a pretty large amount of space of our own for way cheaper than buying into what it's going to cost to maintain the ISS. It's it's possible that'll be the way it breaks. It, it may also break the other way where it turns out that this stuff is more complicated than it seems and that it's it's easier to just go with the thing that's already up there. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it could go. It could go a couple of different ways, but I am intrigued by the fact that you know, as I, I mean, people who listen to this show know that I've said this for a long time. But the Bigelow stuff is cool because it is, you know, it, I love questioning the idea that that everything that needs to go up needs to be a rigid, you know, a rigid piece of construction that is, you know, you you launch it and it and then it's in orbit and Bigelow's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we can take advantage of the fact that we can expand this stuff when it gets out there and ship it in a, you know, it's like Ikea furniture, ship it in a flat pack box and then inflate it. And then you've got a way larger habitat for way cheaper. And it seems to be pretty, um, pretty solid. So, so far based on what we've seen about, about beam. So yeah, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about, the fact that you could end up with much larger habitats. And yeah, that does lead to things like space tourism or, or space hotels or things like that, where you can have a larger number of people and uh, they've got room to spread out and stuff like that. So part of this, what would make this possible is a bunch of changes to the regulation and the rules around spaceflight, at least based in the United States. So this is something that the National Space Council uh, led by Mike Pence, has been looking at and talking about. And they've sort of come out with four so, sort of four directions they want to take things, four things that they want to work on uh, that they say will make this sort of work, like the B-330 and other commercial partnerships with the station, make those things uh, easier, more viable, and I think ultimately more affordable for companies who want to take advantage of them. And... Um, we can kind of go through these. Um, the They sort of revolve around making things that currently exist easier. So the first one is uh, making it easier to secure launch licenses by streamlining federal aviation administration processes. So I, I wasn't really aware of how complicated this was, but you have to have obviously each vehicle certified and you have to have it certified and have it licensed for individual locations. So 
for instance, talking about SpaceX a second ago, they have to have a license for every launch at Kennedy and anytime they launch at Vandenberg. It's not like a universal, like, you know, once you have it, you're good. You have to apply for all of these different licenses uh, for all these locations for each vehicle. So it's, it's a lot of overhead and paperwork. And, you know, we could argue whether or not how much of that is necessary. I don't think I'm equipped to do that at least, but um, they want to make that simpler and more streamlined. Yeah. Also, um, private space ports and government facilities have d- different licensing rules too. So if you're launching from uh, the Mojave Desert at a private <clears throat> at a private spaceport, uh, you have a totally different licensing regime apparently than if you're launching from Vandenberg or Kennedy. Uh, so moving down the list a little bit, um, the Commerce Department wants to create a framework for oversight of non-satellite activity by commercial companies. So kind of the way to think about this is that most of the the rules in place really only talk about satellites or satellite adjacent technologies like um, um, not really flying a car into space or right. doing more experimentation. And there seems to be sort of this this vacuum forming of these companies want to do these things, but the government has no way to sort of speak into those into those things. Right. We, we talked about this briefly uh, a while ago about Moon Express, that it was trying to uh, land on the moon, and it had it, I think it had to have, like, congressional approval yeah. <laughs> for uh, their attempt to land something on the moon because the satellite legal sort of, like, concepts around putting satellites does not apply to what if I want to send something to the moon and, and land it. Um, which didn't happen. Nobody has claimed the X prize, but still it's one of these issues that like, wouldn't it be something if you were ready to go to the moon and you couldn't because of red tape. And that's, that's, that is weird. Like we are entering a new phase here and the regulations have not caught up. And uh, all that would be under the commerce department, the idea of a space czar that would sort of consolidate all of this stuff into a single office. Um, I think for the most part, this makes sense. Like clearly companies are pushing beyond what, the government has has reached as far as a level of of rules and responsibility. So I think this is a pretty a pretty fair point um, on the National Space Council's part that you know, companies want to do more. We want to be able to support them, and when you know or if the situation arises, have the standing to step in and regulate something if we feel it is necessary. So I think I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. Uh, up next, simplifying the Federal Communications Commission's process for granting access to radio frequencies that are used to communicate with satellites from the ground. Uh, so you have limited spectrum uh, available. And again, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently it's a giant nightmare to have access granted to that. And you have to coordinate with all these different players. And again, the Department of Commerce uh, is being tasked to come up with better ways to manage this. The FCC will, will still be in charge of the licenses themselves, but coming up with a, a more streamlined process to make this easier. You know, part of the um, part of the, the most interesting stuff going on right now, I think, in low Earth orbit, are uh, these satellites are getting smaller and smaller. These single purpose units, and these some of these companies are very small, and they can they can now launch something because they're so small. You can launch a bunch of them at once. Um, these companies are struggling to to have access granted them for the ability to communicate. And so they, they want to make that a more streamlined process, just like the launch licenses. Yeah, it makes, it makes sense. It's funny that we're also talking about like 
So, okay, let, let's get this straight. FAA, Commerce Department, FCC, like all of these different places um, that are licensing all these different things. And I get why they are where they are, but it is uh, it is fascinating to get down to this level of detail of like all the different steps. It's actually kind of amazing that we've gotten commercial space where it is now in the U.S., given all of these different things that have to be uh, taken care of. Um, lastly looking at exporting technology developed in the U.S. and moving technology across international borders. Currently, most space hardware is restricted under the U.S. munitions list. And then you also have the commercial control list, which covers commercial items that could have a military application. So it's sort of two degrees of severity when it comes to what you can do internationally with, with this technology. In 2014, a lot of technologies and satellites was moved to the commercial list uh, away from the munitions list by the Obama administration that helped relax some of these regulations and rules. But the, the National Space Council wants to make it basically easier for large international corporations to use technology developed in the U.S. and abroad um, more effectively, I guess, is, is what they're after. So, again, smoothing some red tape out, smoothing some some bumps in the road so companies can move information and technology across borders uh, that they, in some cases, are prohibited from doing now under the munitions list. Yeah, and this goes back to something else we talked about, which is the um, the rules about doing space with China that currently exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really funny given... Um, the specificity of that, like we have issues with Russia, <laughs> but we there are partners, but we have issues with China, and it's like not legal to discuss space tech with china it's It's a very strange situation that I'm not quite sure uh, at the same time i do I do wonder about like we talk about all these u s regulations I mean there's a reason perhaps why that one um rocket lab is uh launching from New Zealand right I mean you that's going to be a story I think in the next few decades in terms of space is there's so much space activity going on in the u.s and it's a point of pride for um a a lot of portions of the u.s that there is so much uh going on in commercial especially when nasa is in between uh doing its own crewed missions at this point um but other kind we're, we're talking about all these impediments these are all impediments that are impediments because of american laws and regulations so uh, you could view this reform effort as also a way for the U.S. to remain competitive here, because otherwise, you know, there are there are other options, right? And there could be even more options. Whether it's um, going to uh, Guyana, like uh, like the uh, Ariane rocket, or whether it's going to um, New Zealand, like Rocket Lab. So uh, that's also kind of part of this. I think is how do you clean this up? so that uh, U.S. operators are uh, feeling good about launching from the U.S. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, all in all, I I don't have any major problems with this that uh, I don't think. Again, this is sort of high level. We will see how they get implemented and what details come out of this. But uh, so far, I I don't think I see too much to complain about here. Yeah, I mean... I guess the downside would be like if we believe that there's something going on that is dangerous to people or yeah uh, to the environment or something like that, where they they're going to simplify the rules to the point where you know uh, somebody's 
radios get jammed and we can't hear from their satellite or we lose data here or, or some horrible chemical spills over here or something like that. But um, beyond that kind of stuff, like this seems very, very much like uh, people are trying to push things in directions that the government, which is a slow and huge bureaucracy, it has not anticipated and does not know how to deal with. And so somebody is finally sort of saying, okay, we need to, we need to figure all of this out. We need, we need to have a coordinated approach to this stuff that has evolved very slowly since the sixties, because where it's going in the next 20 years is a lot more interesting and different than it's been the last 40 or 50. So I'm all for, I'm all for that for the same reason. Like you can see it, like this is all patchwork and nobody's really thinking of where it's going from here. So this makes sense. So we're going to, uh, to wrap up with, um, some science science stories yeah yeah you um, know i love i love the science stories yeah i do and we've been so so busy with well we did mercury and gemini and then we did all this budget stuff we've been so busy with the sort of here and now like commercial space station stuff it's nice to back away from that a little bit um so it's it's good news for the topics for the podcast not so much good news for one certain exoplanet that we once had our heart set on yeah, so people were really excited when they discovered an exoplanet that was theoretically in the habitable zone around Proxima Centauri, which is our closest neighbor, 4.3 light years away. Um, and we've talked about it in terms of the problem with, with these red dwarf stars, which is they're prone to flaring. And it's something that's come up from time to time, and I always have it in the back of my mind when people are getting very excited about a planet in the habitable zone about a red dwarf. The red dwarfs are cooler, which means the habitable zone around them is very close to the sun, extremely close to those stars, way more than than uh, on our star, which is much hotter, and so we are kind of far away. As a result, you're very close, and uh, if there are flares, well, that could be really bad. Well, guess what? There was a a telescope that was watching Proxima Centauri, this closest closest star to us. It was the Atacama Desert in South America, millimeter, submillimeter, large array, also called ALMA. I like my acronyms. And what ALMA discovered was a massive stellar flare from uh, from Proxima Centauri. and you can imagine like what we're what we're seeing first off we're seeing a flare on another star that's awesome and second is if you imagine a planet where that little exoplanet lives then um you can imagine that it's completely sterilized by x-rays and other uh just spectacularly uh bad uh not conducive to life radiation that uh is zapping it so we actually got so bad news if you were hoping there was life on that planet, but cool in the sense that this gives us another data point about like just how feisty these uh, these little red dwarf stars are in terms of it has to. They're so small that the convection is all like moving around inside the star in ways that doesn't happen on a larger star, and they are prone to um, uh, they have very large magnetic fields, and that creates these uh, these huge flares that happen and you get like 10 times the brightness of the star in x-rays which is bad for life that's nearby yeah just uh cooked cooked to kingdom come yeah sterilized i mean is the way that 
that uh that phil play put it in his story that we'll we'll uh link to it's uh yeah uh, but uh but cool but forget having life on that and probably i mean this is the thing is that red these red dwarves are incredibly common but and we need we need to know more but i think it's fair to say don't get too excited about planets around red dwarfs because what we know about red dwarfs is that they're potentially quite unstable and probably not conducive to being a host for life especially since the planets have to be huddled up really close to the star in order to be warm enough to support life that that the trade-off there is that they're also probably getting bathed in radiation um, and hit by flares and that's really bad so it may be that they are uh, a great source of planets and not a great source of life bearing planets uh up next we have a story out of austria the university of vienna has been constructing growth chambers and the idea here is to simulate the environment at enceladus what's this story really jason kind of blew my mind when i saw you put it in the document <laughs> um there's this so <clears throat> to pause that story for a second uh at the bottom of the ocean on earth in several places you have these vents where you have uh super hot gases being expelled uh, into the ocean at the bottom of the, of the ocean floor. And there is life found around these vents, but it's not life that looks all that much like us. Like it, they use chemical reactions for food and they, they pull their energy from this, this water and the chemicals in the water and the heat, um, little single celled organisms. So the idea here was, if those sorts of events happen at Enceladus, which is not known if, if that is true, right? It's not known that these events would exist there. But the idea is if they do, uh, how closely can we uh, mimic the, in, the environment that may be around them? And so that's what this, this University of Vienna study has been about. So they have all these different growth chambers, and they're all a little bit different. They've tweaked the chemical composition and the temperature and all these factors, but they're looking to see if these single-celled organisms called, called I'm going to butcher this, archaea? Archaea, yeah. Archaea. Uh, if they would survive there. And uh, it turns out that, at least in these mock-ups, the answer is is yes. And in a couple of cases, thrived and even started producing methane as part of their chemical reaction, which is found at Enceladus. So there's, it's not... It's not proof that life exists there, but it's saying if these vents exist and, and if we have mimicked these, you know, all these, uh, all these dials and knobs are in the right place, then at the very least, it's possible, which is pretty wild. Yeah, it's um, you know we're not discovering life here, although the the the, the angle is this is the kind of stuff you look for when you when you build a probe to fly through the. Um, the fountains that are shooting off of Enceladus um, and see if you can get get evidence that there's life in the ocean because it's a it's an enormous ocean um, but what this does suggest is that absolutely life can of, of a kind right archaea are you know single-celled microscopic organisms but it's life and you know some people feel like this is the kind of thing that is the origin of life is mm -hmm. something like this. Um, and they can make it at Enceladus. And that is, uh, that's super, super interesting. We don't know for sure 
that there are hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, but we think that it's a possibility given all the pushing and pulling that's happening that is warming up Enceladus thanks to uh, thanks to gravity, uh, thanks to Saturn. But uh, there probably are, or there's a good chance, just like on uh, Europa, and uh, that makes this really interesting. It does. All right, you want to take us home with a little uh, general relativity? This is just, yeah, this is a an Earth science story that's also a relativity story. So I just thought it was a funny story, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, so relativity means the stronger the gravitational field, uh, the slower time passes. That's one of the techniques here. That's like, so like if you, if you saw um, the, oh, now I'm not going to, interstellar. Mm-hmm which has like black holes in it. And the idea there is that when you're down by the black hole, there's time dilation. It's not just about going fast. It's also about gravity. Um, These are ways you can do time dilation in general relativity. Well, um, what is more at the bottom of a gravity well than the center of a planet? The answer is nothing. Well, right. It's going to be more gravity down at the center than it is going to be at the surface. Right. Which leads to a very funny effect, which somebody calculated, which is... Due to relativity, the surface of the Earth is uh, two and a half years older than the core of the Earth. (laughs) Because although it's an incredibly small relativistic effect, the difference between the crust of the Earth and its core, it does exist. And the Earth has been around for so long now that the relativistic effect is about two point five years so the core of the earth is younger than the surface by two and a half years they uh there is nothing particularly relevant about this fact i just thought it was pretty cool that it is pretty that, cool that that's an example like if you do the math and somebody did the math over over 4.5 billion years which is a lot of years the core has been moving a little bit more slowly in time just because of the gravity it's cool I like that someone took the time to do the math. Yeah, it's good to do the math. That's, uh, that's, it reminds me, like when I was in college, I, I once, uh, had the last chapter of, of my math, my calculus class. Um, I, I did the math and realized that I could just not do that part and awesome. my grade wouldn't change. <laughs> and I felt bad on one level. On another level, it's like, but I did the math. <laughs> it's yeah. a math class. I did the math. I'm just not going to do this. And that's, and that's why I don't know how to do quadratic equations, mm. but I got an A. So, too bad. <laughs> do, do you feel limited by that decision now? Gets put real... uh, the only time that I've ever needed to know how to do quadratic equations is literally when my daughter, who is in pre-calc right now, had to do quadratic equations. And she said, do you know how to do these? And I said, funny story. <laughs> nope. <laughs> also, don't do what I did. <laughs> yeah. No, because you need you need the, the, the credit in this class. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, two and a half years. So, if you want to sit, if you want to stay young, sit at the core of the earth is what I'm saying. Yeah, I'll get right on that. The fountain of youth down there, really. Oh, yeah. Minus all the, you know, magma and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think that does it. If you want to find links to all the stuff we talked about this week, and we talked about a lot of stuff. I feel like I need to go lay down. All those links are in the podcast app you're listening to or on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 67. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link. There's a link to our Tumblr where Jason and I post stuff on a regular basis basis uh jason what's that url uh liftoff podcast dot space that's what i was looking for you can find us on twitter as well 
Jason at, is at J Snell, J S N E double L, and you can find me there as I S M H. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios.